invite you to take your Bible and open it up to Genesis 32. If you did not bring a Bible, uh, you can find one, hopefully, in one of the seats in front of you, to the left or the right or right in front of you. Uh, Page 32 if you're using one of our Bibles. And if you don't have a Bible, I would love to give you one. You can come see me after the worship service, and um, I'll get you a Bible. Please bring your Bible on Sundays. We're at the end of this sermon series, Jesus and Genesis, looking at where we see Christ and his ways in the very first book of the Bible. And um, I'm going to start with verse 3. With just a very provocative story. I'm going to read a while, tune into God's Word. Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. And he instructed these messengers to to say, this is what you're to say to my lord Esau. Your servant Jacob says, I have been staying with Laban and have remained there until now. And I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, male and female servants. And now I am sending this message to my lord that I might find favor in your eyes. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, We went to your brother Esau, and now he is coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and herds and camels as well. He thought, if Esau comes and attacks one group the group that is left may escape. Then Jacob prayed, Oh, my, oh God, my father. Oh, God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two camps. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me, and also my mothers, also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper, and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. And he spent the night there, and from what he had With him, he selected a gift for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats and 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 female camels with their young, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. He put them in the care of his servants, each herd by itself and said to his servants, go ahead of me and keep some space between the herds. Now, Jump over to verse 21. And so Jacob's gifts went on ahead of him, but he himself spent the night in the camp. And that night Jacob got up and took his wives, his two female servants, and his 11 sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. And after he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all of his possessions. And so Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him. Till daybreak. 
When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that the hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask me my name? And then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. Now, Jacob is one of the most familiar names from the Old Testament. And names back in ancient times, you may know, carried with them great significance. They, a person's name gave you insight into that person's inner life, into their character. And the name Jacob means deceiver. Great name, mom and dad, deceiver. And the interesting thing is is that is exactly who Jacob was. He turned out to be a deceiver. He spent his life deceiving people, manipulating them. He manipulated his brother Esau and tricked him into giving. Esau was the older of the two twins, but firstborn. Being firstborn, there's a special privilege that goes with that special portion of of the inheritance, and um, Jacob manipulated his brother Esau into giving him that larger portion of the inheritance. Jacob manipulated his father Isaac and deceived his father into giving Jacob the the special blessing um, which Isaac, his father, would normally reserve for the firstborn son, Esau. And so... uh, He manipulated Esau, manipulated Isaac, and Esau got pretty furious and sick and tired of all the tricks, and he threatened to kill Jacob. And so Jacob had to move away, run away. And he goes to a land, meets his the the woman he would marry, and their father, a man named Laban, and he continues manipulating people there, and he manipulates his uh, father-in-law, Laban and becomes quite wealthy in the process of doing so. And Laban kind of sees what's going on and um, gets a little tired of that. And, um, you know, Jacob's using this manipulation, these this deceiving tactics to make a way for himself, make a life for himself, make his own way. And he's living with with his father-in-law and his wives in this other land, and things get a little heated, and he he starts to realize that uh, things might not be safe for him there. His father-in-law's learning about how um, he's kind of being deceptive and growing wealthy off of him from that, and realizes that he may be in danger. And the Bible puts it like this, Genesis 31, verse 2, Jacob noticed that Laban's, his father-in-law, his attitude towards him was not what it had been. You don't say. You don't say, Jacob. All this trickery of yours is leading somewhere. 
So Jacob wants to return home. And, and home for Jacob is, is this, it represents something. It represents rest to, to Jacob. Only it doesn't mean rest because there's something or someone that is in between him and this, this homeland, this rest. And that's his brother Esau who wants to kill him. And rest is a very important idea in the Bible. We see it throughout the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, this promise of rest. And I want to look at rest and how we get it this morning. Um, Look at this promise from Joshua chapter 21, because what we're going to see is rest and a promised land and God's blessings and promises. They all point to the same thing. They, They are... They all identify, they're all seen as the same thing. So from Joshua 21, uh, so the Lord gave Israel, not Israel, Jacob, but Israel, the, the nation of Israel, all the people, all the land he had sworn to give their ancestors. So the promised land. And they took possession of the promised land and settled there. The Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their ancestors. Not one of their enemies withstood them. The Lord gave all of their enemies into their hands. Not one of the Lord's good promises to Israel failed. Every promise was fulfilled. So there we see it. Land, promised land, rest, God's promises, the fulfillment of God's promises, all were seen as the same thing. And this is what our hearts really long for is rest. Even if we wouldn't put it like that, we might say, you know, what we long for, we long for, we long for prosperity, we long for security, we long for the time we don't have to worry about what's going to happen at work the next week, or, you know, finances, security, and peace. That's what we long for. And the Bible has this word for that. It's called rest. It's promised throughout Scripture. And how do we see rest? Well, what people try to do is often to make rest happen on our own. I'm going to get me that rest that I want. I'm going to do it. You know, whether that means I'm going to work really hard at school to get some opportunities for myself, or I'm going to just knock it out of the park in my job, or, you know, I'm going to get this place for myself and I'm going to fill it with great stuff we often come up with plans to get for ourselves what the Bible would say is rest, just this feeling of, ah, I'm there. Life is how it should be. But that's not how the Bible says we find rest. So we're going to look at, look at what Jesus says about rest. Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, come to me. Here's how you get rest. Come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. So how do we get rest? Especially if we felt, I mean, I've kind of made a mess of things in life. Just like Jacob made a mess of things in his life, and now he wants rest. How can we find rest? Especially if we've kind of gone our own way, try to forge our path, and maybe have wound up at a place where, like, how do we get here, and how do we, how do we find rest in this Maybe mess that we've made. When we've tried to manage our 
way in life, and life just seems hard. So first thing we need to know, God promises rest to us when we live in his kingdom. That's, that's where the place of rest is, is living in God's kingdom. Jesus says, I will give you rest. I'll give you what you're looking for. And how he describes this is living in God's kingdom. And he talks about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven being like a banquet, a great banquet. Everything is prepared. Everything's ready. It's a delicious banquet. It's a celebration. Everything's there waiting for you. Talks about the kingdom of heaven being like this, this big shade tree. And birds, you know, they, they find rest. They find shade sitting in the branches of the tree. So the kingdom of heaven's like this treasure and it's in a field, and it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's an amazing treasure. And, and when someone knows that it's there, they'll spend all of their wealth just to buy that field so they can have that treasure because it's, it's what you've been waiting for. It's rest. And Jesus says that we get into God's kingdom not through our own ingenuity, not, not by earning our way into God's kingdom, not by our good looks, not by our good efforts, not by just doing really good at something and getting into God's kingdom. Instead, he says, through me. That's, that's how you get into God's kingdom is through me. Come to me. I'll bring you into God's kingdom. And the second thing we need to know is that the way into God's kingdom is through humility and desperation. So it's not our good looks. It's not how well we do things. It's not our effort. It's not us being good. It's through humility and desperation. And Jesus shows this, and he uses people as examples. He, you know, he'll take a kid, a little child, and he'll say, come here, come here, come here, come here. Come stand here over with me. And back in Jesus' day, there was no lowlier position than, than the position of a child. You know, it's not that way today. Today we build theme parks for our children, Right? There's Disney World waiting for you because you're a child, not in Jesus' day. To be a child was just to be in a lowly position. Come here, come here, come here, little child. And has this child stand with him. And then he'd say, the way the the kingdom is through humility and desperation. And he'll say with his child in their presence. Next, Next slide. Truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. That's what Jesus said. It comes through humbling yourself. And Jesus would show that you, you come into the kingdom when you're desperate and you reached out to who? To desperate people, to sinners, to the poor, the lame, the blind, and religious leaders would ask Jesus, why are you eating with sinners all the time? And Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but it's the sick, and I have come to call the righteous. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. In other words, Jesus is saying, I've come for those people that know they are sick and are in need of a doctor. If you don't know that you're sick, that's, that's quite a different problem. That's a more serious problem if you don't know that you're sick. It's a much more precarious spot. You enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, when there's this breakdown moment and you're like, oh, I, I'm sick. I need this. I'm desperate. And 
in this story, Jacob comes to this kind of a moment, this, oh, what have I done? I am sick moment. He's on his way home. And messengers come back and tell him in verse 6 of our story, they say, we went to your brother Esau, and now he's coming to meet you. And 400 men, by the way, are with him. 400 men, and they probably weren't there to say, hey, Jacob's back. All right. That's probably not why the 400 men were with Esau as a welcoming crew. 400, that, that was militia-type numbers. This is a militia, most likely. We're not, we don't know for sure, but likely this is the militia coming to pay back Jacob for his trickery. And verse 7 says, Jacob had great fear and distress, this rock-bottom moment. He's thinking, I'm a goner, and it's not just me. My wives, my kids, they're goners too. Just this lowly moment. And then in this moment, Jacob does what he has not done before, at least as described in Scripture. He has not prayed before, but now he prays. This is the first time we see Jacob pray in Scripture. In this prayer that we read, by the way, this is the longest prayer recorded in Genesis. Jacob's prayer right here. Isn't that interesting? So this schemer, this one who is made his way in life by manipulating others, forging his way, is at this rock-bottom moment. He's finally, he's praying. He's empty. He cries out to God, I cannot do this myself. You have to save me. How can you tell if you're really humble and desperate? It's through your prayers. You pray. Our prayers are an indication of our humility and our desperation. And I want to talk about prayer because many people pray. Just because you pray doesn't mean that you are humble and desperate, right? Because we, and I say that collectively, human beings, we we fire off these short little prayers all the time. God, I could sure use some help with this. I hope this goes well. God, this test has to go well. Please help this to go well. I need this to work out. These prayers go up all the time. And and please hear me. It is good to talk to God frequently, to pray to God frequently, and to come to him with all kinds of petitions. That is a good thing. But there is a difference between coming to God, asking him to be your assistant, and asking him to be your Lord and your life. when it comes to receiving rest, there has to be a time when you realize I'm looking for more than an assistant here. I'm looking for someone to be my Lord and my life. You have to know God's math. God has this strange kind of math. God's math goes something like this. All of my smarts, all of my smarts, all of my abilities, plus all of my abilities, plus all of my accomplishments, that seems like it might be getting to be a pretty big sum, plus zero God? Still seems pretty big. No, 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 no. God's math says plus zero God equals zero. There's a negation that takes place, a cancellation. Strange kind of math. That's God's math. 
without God, it doesn't matter what else I have in my life without God, it's just zero. And Jacob finally realizes this, and he, he prays, and his prayer is just this desperate prayer, it's this humble, desperate prayer. And we see something in this prayer. I want to look at three things we see. One, in prayer, we rely on God's character because Jacob prays, God save me, but he has this little litany. Um, and in, in giving this little litany, he's, he's trusting in God's character. He prays in verse 9. Look at verse 9. O oh God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you who said to me, go back to your country, the country which you, by the way, promised my father Abraham, my grandfather Abraham and father Isaac, and I will make you prosper. So he's not just grasping at straws in his prayer. He's putting his trust in God's character. I know you'll be there for me, God, because you promised me something. I know you're faithful to your promises. I can count on you because I can count on my character, not count on your character, that is. Two, in prayer, we rely on God's kindness. So when you're desperate before God, you don't only have to rely on the faithfulness of God, you don't, uh, his faithful acts from the past. You don't only have to rely on, well, God, in the past you've done some things, and I'm really hoping those things continue. You can rely on God's kindness. Look at verse 10. Jacob prays, I am unworthy of all the kindness and the faithfulness you have shown your servants. So real prayer is not where you see yourself in some tug of war with some God that wants to just mess around with your life and give you substandard things. And you're like, God, I need more, I need better things than these substandard things that you're giving me. And God's like, eh, you know, I just want to give you a little. You're not in some tug of war with that kind of a God. You don't have to convince God to bring good things to you because God is kind. He's kind. So prayer is not manipulating God. It's not trying to come up with the right formula to try to convince God of something or the right arrangement of of words. It's not about getting the prayer right so that God finally says, oh, okay, now you checked all the boxes of prayer and and now I I can give you what you want. Because you're praying to an infinitely kind God. And three... We see in this prayer of Jacob, in prayer we completely surrender to God. Because in that same verse where Jacob talked about the kindness of God, he said, I am completely unworthy of this. And there's this point in Jacob's life when he realizes, I don't, I don't deserve any of the stuff that God gives to me. And there's a surrender. And considering himself unworthy and surrendering, that is a new idea for Jacob. He had not prayed that before. So Jacob's completely out of out of rope. Save me, God. Because I know I've been able to finagle my way into things and out of things in the past, but I'm at the end of my rope. No more. I'm completely unworthy of you. Have you ever prayed like that? Gotten before God and said, I am completely unworthy. So in prayer, we recognize we're broken, that there's something that's not right in us. We don't come to God competent for the running, competent for the act of running our life and just need an assistant. We come to God incompetent 
for the act of running our life and needing his grace, his mercy, his forgiveness to come in and change us and to make us whole. And if you haven't prayed like that, that humble, desperate prayer, you haven't really gotten to the heart of prayer. If all you've prayed to the quick, God, I really need this to go this way. Please help that to happen. Then you've invited God to be your assistant, but you haven't invited God to be your Lord and your life. And so I want to give you this phrase, this phrase that is said of this deep type of prayer. And the phrase is this. I've heard this. I've heard it said, failure to pray like this, this deep type of prayer, is embezzling your life from God. It's keeping your life at an arm's distance from God. God, I'm capable of running my life. I need you to be my assistant. And that's embezzling your life from God. Real prayer is when you ask God, to take over and to heal you and to make you whole and to reshape you, to reform you, to guide you. And God wants to make you whole. And so we need to know that the greatest change that happens in prayer is the change in our hearts when we pray. It's not change in a circumstance or situation. It's the change that takes place in our heart. That's the greatest change that happens in prayer. Because God wants to take all these parts of you that tend to hold on to anger and reshape that, reform that. God wants to take all these parts in you that lack courage and reshape, reform that. The parts of you that just can't look into the future with hope and reshape, reform that, heal that. The, the, the parts of you that lack courage, whatever, and, and just reshape, reform that and heal you. By the way, um, we, when we're talking about prayer. I want to highlight, we have a prayer class coming up the end of September, September 21st and 28th, two Saturday mornings from 9 to 2. And we will talk about prayer. We'll talk about this healing kind of prayer where God makes you whole. Talk about the prayer ministry of our church. And we'll feed you lunch. It's a free event. Love for you to come to that prayer class. That may be for you. Just want you to consider that. So Jacob prays this humbling, desperate prayer, and something really unusual happens. He's all alone that night. And that night, Jacob wrestles with God. And this is an odd story. One, we don't think of physically wrestling with God too often. Odd in that regard. Um, It's also odd because this wrestling match lasts all night long. And so think about wrestling or grappling with someone. You do that for a minute, a couple of minutes, maybe three minutes, and you are wiped out, right? When you're giving it your all and you're wrestling, Man, that drains you. Well, this goes all night long. How and why? Well, God lets it go all night long. Because this wrestling match is a metaphor, isn't it? It's a metaphor for Jacob's whole life because his whole life he's been wrestling with people. He's been wrestling with his brother Esau and wrestling with his 
father Isaac and wrestling with his father-in-law Laban is wrestling with uh, God because he's never really submitted himself to God. And then this man who is God wrestling with Jacob feels that, okay, this metaphor has gone on long enough, all night long. It's finally gone on long enough. And so God touches Jacob's hip. It knocks his hip out of its socket. Just a touch. I mean, this, this was not some figure four leg lock kind of move from God. It was just a touch and boom, hips out of its socket. And imagine the pain in that moment. And you, you have to think, well, why God did you do that? I don't think it was because he wanted to inflict that physical pain on Jacob. It wasn't like, I'm going to get him here. That's not God's intent for that. But rather to reveal something to Jacob about himself. Because Jacob does something really fascinating at that moment. Because think about it, in a wrestling match, when someone's hip or joint gets dislocated, I mean, come on, it's wrestling matches over, right? It's, I'm done, I'm, I'm tapping out, that's it, forget it. But that's not what Jacob does when his hip, he can't walk, he can't stand on it, but he doesn't tap out. Verse 26 says, This is after the hip has been dislocated. The man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And Jacob hangs on to God even longer. So I imagine just Jacob's laying on the ground, and he's got his arms around this man's leg or something. He's just, oh, I'm not letting go, even though my hip is out of its socket. I won't let you go unless you bless me. So, Question, is this just another example of Jacob's manipulative ways? Or is this something else? Is this just a sheer act of desperation? What do you think? Manipulation or desperation? Man, I think this is desperation. And and I'll tell you why. Because Jacob knows who he is up against. And he has seen his wrestling opponent with a simple touch, dislocate his hip. And he knows, boy, what if God just puts his weight into it a little bit more this time? I'm, I'm done. There's no manipulation in this. just sheer desperation. I need your blessing. So what does Jacob realize about himself in that moment? It shows, this shows that Jacob finally gets God's math. That my life plus my smarts plus my willpower, plus my ingenuity, plus my ability to manipulate others, my craftiness, all of that added together without God plus zero God equals zero. And Jacob realizes that. He realizes that he has absolutely nothing to lose, in other words. God, if I don't have your blessing, I'm zero. I have nothing to lose unless I get your blessing. This is just desperation. And it's only in this moment, God leads him to this moment. It's only in this moment that Jacob recognizes how desperate he really is. 
has nothing to lose. He's going after God's grace and blessings. And it's, that's when we receive God's grace. It's only when we see how desperate we are for it, that we have nothing to lose. All we need is God's grace. You see, there can be no rest in our life, no real rest unless we surrender, until we surrender to God. God changes us when we surrender to God's grace. Have you surrendered to God like that? That's when change will start taking place. And we can know that because of what God's grace really is. I want to highlight three things. Uh, Kent Hughes talks about these three things about God's grace that we can know. One, God's grace is relentless grace. We will change when we encounter God's grace because God's grace is relentless. God's grace pursues Jacob even when Jacob's just kind of this scoundrel. Who, who, who likes Jacob? Not me. I don't, want, I don't like being manipulated. I don't like Jacob. God's grace pursues Jacob over and over again. And this is why it's so significant that when God asks him, what is your name? And he has to say, Jacob. It's like this confession. Yeah, I'm, I'm a cheat. I'm a deceiver. I'm a swindler. I am the one who will lie and manipulate to get my way to make my own life. He confesses that to God. And what he experiences is grace and not judgment. God doesn't give up on Jacob, and he won't give up on you. God's grace is crippling grace because God's grace aims at nothing less than your complete healing, complete wholeness in your life, complete healing of your heart and your soul, stripping away of your pride and your self-sufficiency. God's grace will show you you are in complete need of God. It's this crippling grace. Even if that means a wrestling match where God will have you walk away limping. Because that limp is what remains when you've surrendered to God. And when you've really said, God is God, I am not, and I need God completely. You have this holy limp that comes when you recognize that. God is God, I am not. And maybe it seems like you've been fighting with God lately. God, I don't want this happening in my life. And there's this wrestling match. And this limp that we can walk away with is when we say, okay, but God, you're God. I am not, and I know, I know I need you completely. So I'm going to trust you. I'm going to walk with you. The way that you can tell your prayers, whether or not your prayers are asking God to be your assistant or whether or not they're asking you to God, asking God to be your Lord in your life is, are you walking with this holy limp? God, you are God. I am not. I need you completely. And God's grace is transforming grace. Because God gives Jacob a new name. What's your name, Jacob, deceiver? No, you're no longer going to be called deceiver. You're going to be called Israel. You're the one who has struggled with God and with men, and you have overcome. And God doesn't mean that, yeah, you've beaten me. You're victorious over me. That's not the meaning of that, not at all. But that you've now surrendered your life. That's how we overcome when we surrender to God.
See, when God asks you, what is your name? What would you say? Would you say, I'm, I'm a manipulator too? Or I'm a cheat? Or I'm a doubter? I'm fearful. Who would you confess that you are to God when you surrender to God's grace? He gives you a new name. He gives you a new name. Because he will take all of you and make you whole when you come to him. And that's how you find rest. Let's pray. Lord, we... We thank you that you are a good, gracious God. We thank you that even in the turbulence of life, you are with us, and that turbulence may be because we're wrestling with you. Maybe that's how we are perceiving this wrestling match with you, just this unrest in our environment, our situation, circumstances of life, unrest in our heart, in our soul, but you're with us. And we trust you. We pray that we would uh, know more than anything else that you're gracious and that you're kind and we can trust you. We can offer up our lives to you in this moment and surrender. And we do that now. Maybe for the first time, maybe it's that daily act of surrender. Reminding ourselves that you are God, that we are not, and that we need you completely. Thank you for your grace in Jesus. Amen.